Hey, everybody. Welcome to Artist Soapbox. Artist Soapbox is a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am your host, Tamara Kassane. Writer, director, and producer Abi Rao is an Asian-American filmmaker based in Morrisville, North Carolina. His films have been screened at Kukaloris Film Festival, Carborough Film Festival, Seattle South Asian Film Festival, the North Carolina Film and Video Film Festival, and more. He released his first feature film, Parallel Parking, in the fall of 2018, for which he received a Filmed in North Carolina grant. His script for Parallel Parking made it to the second round of the 2014 Sundance Screenwriters Lab. In this episode, we discuss the making of Parallel Parking, which I was lucky enough to be able to see in the fall. We also dig into Abi's unconventional process for finding and working with actors, developing scripts, his goals as a filmmaker, and why telling realistic stories of immigrants is so important to him. I was particularly inspired by Abi's ability to work within the boundaries of his time and resources while also continuing to work outside of his comfort zone. I love this conversation, and I think you will too. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Abi. Thanks so much for being here. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So before we talk about what's happening now, I'd like to go back in time a little bit. When did you first begin your relationship to filmmaking? Oh, wow. Uh, to the process of filmmaking, I would say back in 2001. This was when I was in engineering school and we had this project for our annual uh, CD that we published as part of our college. And I was tasked with making a short film. So got together with a few folks from School of Communication, which was next door. And we made a film about 15 minutes in length. It's probably the worst film I've ever made. <laughs> well, it was your first one. So at least that was the yeah. worst one. Right? Yeah. And now that I look back at the uh, the film that we made, it broke all the rules and things of filmmaking. Uh, and it's a little embarrassing. Like what? <laughs> so first of all, we used a lot of copyright material. Uh, songs from Metallica, Nirvana, <laughs> you name it. So right there, you know, it's not going to get published uh, big time. But we did uh, do a few technical um, missteps, if you will, in the film, which, you know, as you grow as a filmmaker, you get to see those more uh, and it becomes more evident as time goes. But at the end of the day, that was uh, my first step. And that's where the journey began. So is that what kind of gave you the bug? And then you thought, all right, I want to keep moving forward with this because you have a parallel career. You have a career that's completely different from filmmaking. How did you continue to have filmmaking as a part of your life moving forward? Right. Uh, since 2001, um, it's been up and down with the process. As you said, I have a full-time career and life happens. So between 2001 and 2009, a whole I didn't spend doing a whole lot of films, uh, spend my time doing a whole lot of films. So what I did was uh, I was still associated with film process. So I read a lot. I watch a lot of movies. I see behind the scene footage, uh, director's cut. So that was my way of keeping myself educated on the process. But when it came to actual filmmaking, that started in 2009 
when I made my first short. So it's a bit of a balance when you have a full-time career and you want to pursue your passion slash hobby. Uh, it takes a little bit of time, but you got to stick with it and keep trying, experimenting, and hopefully things will work out. Was 2009 when you came to North Carolina or was that later? 2009 was when I did move down here. Uh, it was early 2009. Uh, I was engaged at that point, And then we got married that year. So it's a significant year for me. Yes. <laughs> uh, and it was certainly something that helped me uh, explore the region, this area. Uh, I lived in North Carolina back in 2004 uh, in Winston-Salem. But it's a, it's a very different town as compared to, you know, Raleigh-Durham. Uh, it's a lot more diverse here, and uh, there are there's a lot of talent. There's a lot of art that goes on here. It's just that it's in pockets. Mm. Moving down from Philadelphia was an experience because you have large communities uh, closely networking, creating uh, good work. Here it was, you know, spread all over different towns, all the way from Carbro to Raleigh to Garner. So it was a, a learning experience for me to understand where things are and how you connect with the the artists here. Uh, Philadelphia, having its proximity to New York, New Jersey, they have a very solid commercial base there as well. So be it music or acting or television, there is a tremendous potential, tremendous opportunity up there that you don't see as much here in North Carolina. So how did you find the people that you wanted to work with in North Carolina? It was quite challenging. I'll be honest with you. It took me about a year to find the talent, especially I worked with a lot of minority communities. Uh, so my first film, Singing Bee, which is about a young Indian American who is an uh, aspiring spelling bee competitor. And uh, although there's a large Indian population in this area in Cary, Morrisville, uh, it's hard to find people who want to act in films, especially with a no-name filmmaker. So it took a while. It took about a year reaching out to different people. And I don't do the traditional auditions. I don't, you know, set up a shop and bring people in and go through the, the so-called screen test. I talk to people. I get a sense of what their interests are, what their abilities are. And then if I feel they're a good fit, I take the next step. Hmm. So it was a, a fairly long winding process here. You mentioned that you've directed several short films prior to your first feature film, Parallel Parking, and we'll spend a good portion of this interview talking about Parallel Parking. But what did you learn from the short films that you made that made you feel ready to tackle the feature? Yeah. So short films certainly helped me understand my limitations and my capabilities. Uh, I think first thing for a filmmaker is to understand what their boundaries are. And that's what a short film does. It could be two minutes, five, 22, which is how long Singing Bee was. Uh, it's a long short, if you will. And that gave me an opportunity to understand what my taste is, uh, what my skills are from the technical aspect, and my way of storytelling and working with people. I think once I figured that out, and it, I'm still figuring some of that out, it's, a, it's an ongoing process. But that's what a short film does is at very little risk, you're able to present your work and get a sense from the community where you stand. Uh, so it's got an outward facing uh, objective, which is get a sense from the community, see how it sticks to 
uh, a larger audience and inward facing is more about how my testing my capabilities, testing my stamina in that process. And most importantly, my financial uh, resources as well. This is is certainly not a reasonable size project. It can cost a lot of money depending on what scale you make your firms at. So getting a sense of that was really important for me coming from an analytical background. It's it's important that I make films over a period of time. So uh, drawing that, getting that blueprint up front for a short film and then scaling it up into feature film is what I gain from that experience. From a storytelling perspective, I'm really interested in the leap from short to feature because it feels like there might be a different approach to take to the storytelling. I want to ask you about that, but you did something that I thought was really interesting. You made a short film titled Dutchin, and Dutchin is one of the main characters in your feature film, Parallel Parking. So you made the short first, and then you made the feature with the same character, and I know there were some changes in between to her to her journey. Was that a helpful springboard, doing the short to the feature? Was that intentional? Absolutely. It was intentional, and I had two main objectives to taking that step of making Dechen. Number one, I'd never worked with Suthis. Uh, she's an exceptional actress. I've seen her work in other projects, but I have never personally worked with her. Uh, So it was a good uh, jumping board for me to see how we work together. And when I say how we work together, it was literally two people who made the film. Uh, Sue and me, I ran the sound, I ran the camera, locations, everything. So it was very intimate in that sense. And I had a very strong understanding coming out of that project what some of Sue's strengths are. I think it's important that we understand our artist strengths as we jump into projects. So that was one, the first objective that uh, I, I met, uh, fortunately, through that process. The second one was every project that I get on, I try something new. So I bought new cameras for uh, parallel parking. Uh, I've never used those cameras before. I have to do some tests, but I don't want to just go out and shoot, you know, uh, the flowers or the garden or the Mm -hmm. sky. Let's put it to a real test. And that's why we made Dechen, just so I understand the latitude of my camera, the capabilities of my uh, tools and technologies I have with me. And that was the the second objective. I love this idea of using a short as a laboratory and almost putting out not to take away from the value of it, but it's almost like a minimum viable product. You know, it's I'm, I'm putting something together to get something out that people can take in. You get immediate feedback from your own experience, as you mentioned, and then also from people who see the film so that then you can use that data and make something else. Even understanding all that you did about short films and Dutchin, were you surprised by the transition from the shorter to the feature? I wasn't a whole lot surprised, but I did make a few changes to my screenplay, the feature length screenplay, based on Dechen. Uh, because in in the feature length parallel parking screenplay, I had significant amount of uh, writing that was done for Sue, but not as much for her counterpart, who was Keith and plays Oscar in the film. And I think I wanted to draw that balance after my experience in Dechen. Mm-hmm. And 
I wouldn't say give them equal screen time, but have a little bit more uh, counterbalance so that we have two distinct characters on the opposite side of the spectrum rather than making it purely Dechin-centric film. Mm -hmm. And I think that that played well in the feature film had I just gone down the, the Dechin part where she is taking over the screen, things might have turned out slightly differently than my expectation. All right, let's dig into parallel parking because we've talked around it and now I think we can go straight for it. Would you give us a synopsis of your film? Parallel parking is a narrative feature film which, is, which explores the unconventional relationship between a middle-aged Tibetan undocumented immigrant and uh, a Dominican-American truck driver who has his own emotional and uh, mental challenges that he deals with in the film. So in this film, we bring together these two diverse characters and see how their relationship grows over a period of time and the symbiotic relationship they share through the process. This is not your first film about immigrants and it doesn't sound like it's your last based on some things I've read about you online and your future projects. Why is this topic important to you? Well, first off, I'm an immigrant, so I'm closely associated with uh, the community. Uh, secondly, if you look at uh, you know the media that's created and the entertainment industry in general, uh, people from the minority community, be it Asians, women, uh, folks from the LGBTQIA community, are not given the roles that they would really desire to be in. Uh, and this is my way of being inclusive and diverse and including people from the from these communities and making work together. I think there are plenty of stories out there we need to tell. And this is my way of giving back to the community and telling more working class, hardworking, realistic uh, stories that is missing from the media, from the mainstream media, rather. So were there actual people who inspired the characters are the story in Parallel Parking? Absolutely. So the, the character of Dechen is based on several different people I met throughout my life in the United States. Uh, there was a gentleman I met who works at an Indian restaurant. Um, he's from Bangladesh, but he made a journey all the way from Bangladesh to the United States through the, uh, the, the truck smuggling experience. And we had a fairly long conversation that lasted almost two hours where he gave me a step-by-step walkthrough of how he made it here in about 90 days. And at the end of 90 days, he was arrested in Texas and he was in jail for almost six months. Uh, so it was driven, a lot of Dechen's story was driven by her experience. And at the same time, if you talk to a lot of folks from Tibet, whether they are in the United States, India, Nepal, uh, they have a very similar story where they were forced to leave uh, their country back in the 60s and 70s. And most of them have never gone back to Tibet. They're their home country. So uh, it's it's a combination of many different stories coming together. Uh, no one in particular. But it resonates with pretty much every immigrant who's made their way to the United States one way or the other. And it tells a really realistic um, story and, and resonates with uh, tremendous population here. So obviously commercial success would be wonderful as an outcome for this film. 
but you've written that you would like the film to offer more than sheer entertainment. So what does that mean? What else are you hoping for? Most important part for me is awareness and understanding that there is more, there are a lot of stories related to refugees and undocumented immigrants in this country. Oftentimes, these communities get either positive uh, news, like the model, you know, Mm -hmm. citizen view, doctors, lawyers, engineers, accountants, or they come out as criminals. I think there is a middle ground. Uh, there are a lot of uh, people like us who ha- who lead a regular life, whether they are immigrants or not. And these working class people have their own stories to tell. People talk about, you know, uh, migrant smuggling or especially what's going on today in politics. It becomes very relevant looking at what's out there. And uh, these kinds of stories humanize uh, individuals. They tell the inside story of what takes place between two individuals or a, or a family for that matter. And that's what we did in this story without getting too political. What we wanted to do was tell Dechen's story. And there are things in there which is positive. There are things in there which is not so positive. But we didn't try to hide anything. Uh, we made it very evident to folks so that we can have a, a strong conversation after the film, after you watch the film, to to talk about certain steps she took or did not take in the film, which led her to a certain place in her life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and without getting into the specifics, things like you know trauma, homelessness, unemployment, uh, migrant smuggling, which is an organized crime in this world, not just in the United States, but all over the world. And the identity issue, right? Who am I? Am I a Tibetan? Am I a, Nep- a Nepalese? Am I a citizen of the United States? I think those questions are extremely important to, to present to the audience so that we get a sense of how critical it ends up being in one's life. And what kind of conversations have you had with people after they've seen the film, what has the response been? The response has been good so far. Uh, And what I mean by good is it's up to my satisfaction. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not expecting this to be a big blockbuster taking over the theaters all over the country. What I am satisfied by is the fact that individuals come up to me and they tell me things like this film touched me or this film tells the story of my mother she got an email from a young lady. She said, uh, the scene that took place in the DMV, that's my mother's story. And it didn't go down well for my mom, but that's okay. It's important that you tell such specific stories and, and subplots so that people understand what it means to do mundane things like getting a license. Yes. Right. Or going uh, or, or working in a sandwich shop and doing your job. But it's not straightforward for some of these folks. And this has been evident in some of the cases that took place not too long ago up in New York. Uh, this attorney yelled at uh, some of the Hispanic workers there and asked them to go back home. So we have a similar scene in the film and it just tells you how close we replicate life mm-hmm. uh, through art form. And it wasn't planned that way, but it's uh, so creepy that things have, uh, you know, aligned uh, between art and and life. I think it's a very timely film, and I loved all of the questions that you raised. 
about identity, about what it means to have a home, about the things that most of us take for granted, like getting a license, like finding a job, like having a place to live and like speaking a language. And I think that healing back how these challenges can kind of build upon one another. And I felt like throughout the film, Dutchin was only a few steps away from a really from total failure, you know, and it's almost miraculous that she built and found the safety net for herself. It took a lot of work and courage and resourcefulness, but she was walking that line for most of the movie between survival and not. And I think that is something that we don't talk about very much. Uh, It's part of our public discourse about how many people are walking that line and about what a day-to-day survival looks like for those folks. So I found that to be very powerful part of the film. And also, I think one of your reviewers talked about it being an unconventional love story or an unconventional look at love. I thought that was a really interesting way to approach these two main characters, Dutchin and Oscar, and how they build a life together in a really unexpected way. Why did you decide to do that instead of having some sort of typical, you know, love story and it all wraps up beautifully? And, you know, what, why did you make this kind of a film? Yeah. And that's my goal. Yeah. Uh, as an, as a filmmaker, I want to do the unconventional as much as I can. There's a lot of conventional material out there. All you have to do is open up Netflix or Amazon <laughs> Prime and just put romantic and you'll get 300 titles right there. As a filmmaker, my goal lies in some of the things I said earlier, which is work with the minority community. That's extremely important for me. Present stories that are unconventional in nature and unpredictable Mm -hmm. as well. Uh, Number three, not work as much in areas that I'm very comfortable in. For me to tell a story about an Indian immigrant in the United States is easy, but I don't want to do that. I want to learn about other cultures. I want to make films about other cultures so that we present uh, opportunities for those communities to tell their stories. And that's what I'm doing with my other films is to work with other communities, which in some cases, there are a couple hundred people representing the community in our area. What is this project? Uh, So this project that I'm referring to is called Komak. Komak is uh, a film about two young women One of them is a Filipino-American, a Taekwondo master, and she struggles through finding a career for herself in the film. The second film, uh, I'm sorry, the second character in the film is uh, a Kurdish uh, refugee teenager who moves to the United States with her mother. And the film explores the relationship between these two individuals and how they navigate their uh, their life uh, and find out and figure out the destination and figure out what their career goals are through Taekwondo and hip hop. Hmm. So it's in pre-production and we are working on the script, but that's something that I'm extremely proud of working with the Filipino community and the Iranian community in this area. And as a matter of fact, we were invited to the New Orleans Film Festival where we pitched the story. Hmm. Uh, we were one of the eight teams that were invited, and uh, I believe it went really well. 
and there were a lot of people interested in the subject matter, given that, again, going back to the minority community, their place in um, the American landscape in, in today's world. Mm-hmm. I think it, it it's an interesting perspective I'm trying to hone in on as much as I can. And uh, what's important for me is, again, telling the, the story through the eyes of two young women. Uh, and I'm not writing the film as much. I am presenting a story and they are writing the film. Mm-hmm. So I have about five women associated with the film who are adding content to the film and making a full-fledged uh, feature film. Do you mean that they're writing content or are they improvising acting? Or how's that working? That's a really good question. And this is what I do in my films is improvise as much as I can. So what I do is I present the plot. I bring in uh, the two actors and say, this is the plot. You figure out the lines and we'll improvise as we go. And that's what I want this film to be is improvisation with a solid backdrop. Uh, we, I draw the boundaries. I say, this is what we are trying to achieve here. But think of it as a, a Kurdish teenager and a Filipino uh, American who's a Taekwondo teacher. What would you do in this situation? So I spend a lot of time doing workshop with them. I spend a lot of time with them on the set rather than focusing more on memorization, getting l- your lines right. I think hitting the right beats at the right time is important for me. And having a very intimate set where it's just three, four, five of us helps me achieve that. So when you workshop with them, are you filming or are you just in like some trying ca- things? That, that's another good question. I do film. Okay. Uh, in some cases, they're unaware of that. But I do make sure that they understand what I just completed. Uh, I do film. I try to get as much material as possible. Since I shoot digital, that's not a challenge. We can always delete things. With film, it becomes a little challenging. Uh, and, uh, you know, we have to be very uh, clear about what we're filming when you have when we use the traditional medium. But in this case, uh, I've, I've filmed quite a bit while we're on set. And it also helps us go back and review what we just shot. In some cases, it might just be uh, educational material that we use for our own review purposes. Mm-hmm. In some cases, it ends up in the film. So that could be some of the things that is shown as uh, an important aspect of the film. I'm really interested in this process, so I want to. I'm going to keep asking you questions about it. So you are coming in with a full script, and then they're filling in kind of the color, or are you saying this is where we're starting and you take it where it, where it wants to go? I don't write full scripts. Uh, Parallel Parking never had a script necessarily. It, it had patches of, of pages that looked like script. But uh, if I share with you that document, which is about 48 pages, it didn't have an ending. Uh, a lot of the scenes were missing, which we shot later. But I did have a solid treatment. So I knew what the beats are, you know, act one, act two, act three, the traditional view of storytelling. But I tried to keep myself away from being very prescriptive. I try not to do that but because the stories I tell are not my stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am inspired by those stories. I've heard those stories. But since they're not my stories, I don't feel that I'm in a genuine place to present that idea. And uh, that's what we're, I'm going to do in pretty much every film of mine, which limits me from a lot of things. 
Uh, one of the things is getting grants. Uh, a lot of these grant, uh, rather funders, ask you for your screenplay. And I don't have one. Uh, I have a treatment, but it's in prose format. And they're not a big fan of prose, essay-looking stories. So I do understand those challenges, and that's why I'm very careful about the financial aspect and how I raise funds. But the the treatment is what I go with, and I make my team aware of that, that, guys, things may change as we proceed, and you should be willing to be uh, adaptable to the situation we are in. And that's what I love about my team. I want to give, out a, give a shout out to Alan Lorden, who's my uh, sound genius. He composes music. He's a sound engineer, sound designer, extremely well qualified in that space. And I trust him a lot. Uh, I work with uh, some of my production assistants I've worked with in the past. So these, some, this team you build over a period of time. So going back to your question earlier, that short film helped me start my team so that I can transition my team to a larger project because now I know who these people are and how we work together. That's another benefit of a short film is you start to build your tribe and you start to grow your tribe and you trust them. There are cases where I hand the camera to someone else and have them run it, which for a filmmaker could be a very uh, daunting experience, giving someone else the responsibility or the control. So uh, that's that's how I make films. Regarding the logistics of filmmaking, as we've mentioned, you have a full-time job. I'm assuming most of your team and probably the actors too have other full-time obligations So I'm curious about how you approach the logistics of making films, but then an additional question to that has to do with the process. If some of what you do has this improvising feel to it, do you feel like that adds time? How do you make that efficient? You know what I'm saying? Uh, Yeah, no, that's a good question. And it's a nightmare. Uh, (laughs) I'm not going to lie. It is a nightmare when it comes to scheduling. As you said, a lot of us uh, hold a full-time position, uh, have full-time responsibilities either at home or at a job. And it's not easy. And that's why it's really important that you keep your team tight. Uh, You don't have 20 people because Mm -hmm. when you have 20 people, there are 20 variables that you have to work with. Uh, In my case, I start with my actors. I try and understand what their schedules are. In most cases, we film late in the evening or over the weekend. So I tell them this could take a year, year and a half before we have the film completed. So I set that expectation up front. And I also make sure that when I say improvisation, I don't put a lot of responsibility back on them. And I just like step back and you figure things out. We don't work that way. We work together on that. And there are cases where actors have said, you know, I I would really like if you can give me the lines. So I would work with them and write the lines for them. That's fine. Uh, But when I hire people, when I bring actors on the project, I make sure that they have the skills to improvise. So we just completed an experimental film. It's in post-production now. We shot the entire feature or rather most of the feature over one weekend. Huh. Three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, uh, three actors, two extras. We made the film happen. Uh, Looks good, but you have to realize uh, where where you want your expectations to be. It's an experimental film. 
So it may not have 300 diverse shots to present one scene. Uh, we have very long takes. In some cases, scenes were shot just once because my actors were really strong. They came from the Meisner you know, technique of acting. And I worked with them before the shoot. Uh, I had phone calls with them. We Skyped. We exchanged emails. I helped them get in the character or learn more about the character. So we did the whole backstory, um, you know, review. So it was, there's a lot of work that happens before you actually get on the set. And I want to make sure that when people get on the set, there are no question marks there. We, we walk in, we present our best work, and we walk out. So I'm very mindful of their time and their schedule. And I want to do more of that. I want to do where we make films over one weekend. Yeah, It's unheard of, but I think it could be done. It is unheard of. And I'm excited to see how you hone your process for doing that. Because as a person who finds it really hard to get away and do creative work, a weekend is something that I could do. You know, a weekend is something that some that many people who don't have access to art making can handle. But a very, very long time commitment, 12 hour days, those kinds of things, even if it's short term, even if it's a week of 12 hour days, most people that I know in this area, they just can't commit to that. So I'm very curious to see how that's going to unfold for you. Yeah. And you have to realize that the stories you're trying to tell over a weekend has its own limitation, mm-hmm. right? You can't, can't show be epic, <laughs> right? <laughs> precisely. It can be over a period of 30 years right. where a child's born and then they are, you know, looking for a job in their 30s. So, but there are many other stories you could tell where you have these long takes and this one experience you want to tell, which happened to you over one weekend, mm-hmm. right? Just steal that from one of your past experiences or literature that you may have come across just present that piece of information. I think you can create some really good work in a short period of time without neglecting the quality of work you're trying to present. And and that's why it's really important that you talk to your actors about what's what they are trying to uh, bring to the table. Mm-hmm. If they're trying to present themselves as super versatile actor who has a lot of range and wants to present themselves in many different characters... That may not be a project. And you're, you're exactly right about people's commitment. The moment I tell them that, hey, we're going to make a film over two weekends. First weekend, we're going to film. Second weekend will be for pickups. Are you okay with that? People tell me, let's do it. Mm-hmm. What's the worst that could happen, right? I'll lose one weekend of my life. But the best thing that could happen is I can get some work out of this, which I can use to move forward in my career. I love that idea. And, and that's something I'm seriously thinking about going forward. As much as I love the year and a half or two year long process, it, it gets to you after a while. And it really question, it begs a question, what value does that add in the process? Uh, do you really want to tell that kind of a story? And the answer may be yes, but mm-hmm. I am, I'm shifting my focus going forward. But I'm, I'm open to many different kinds of projects. But uh, scheduling, you know, personal life, personal matters do come in the way. So having limited time schedule, uh, one or two weekends is very affordable. Mm-hmm. I'm very intrigued by this idea also of bending the story 
to fit within a particular type of process, as you've mentioned. You know, you have to really think about the type of story you're going to tell in a weekend. I think that's very, very interesting. I can't wait. I'd like to talk to you about that more in the future. Um, So looking back so far over your filmmaking career, what are you most proud of? What I'm proud of is the fact that I'm able to balance a few things in life. Uh, I'm able to balance my full-time job. I'm able to balance my personal life and I'm able to add my passion into the mix. Uh, it's, it's very challenging. Uh, you know, people, um, especially people like me who moved to the country, uh, we come with a different uh, aspiration. And the aspiration is the American dream that's often mentioned, right? For, for us, what's important is to uh, build a stable life and make sure that we take care of our family. Things like art, things like uh, you know hobbies is not a priority for us from our community, especially. So th- just the fact that I'm able to balance these three things and keep things afloat is is what I'm proud of. Mm-hmm. And what do you feel is your greatest success so far? My greatest success comes in many shapes and forms. Uh, for me, when people come to me and tell me a very specific thing about the film they liked, I'm overjoyed. I'm not big into reviews or, you know, big acclaim or awards. It doesn't matter to me as much. Uh, given that the stake for me in my projects is minimal from financial point of view, I think it, these things come into play when there is a lot of investment made and a lot of expectation, financial expectation that needs to come out of your project. I really love the human touch. Uh, when people come, shake my hand and, or give me a hug and say, that one scene you showed, it touched my heart. Uh, I, I love that. It reminded me of my grandmother who moved here back in the 60s and some of the stories she told me. That's the biggest reward for me. And I hope I get to hear more of that going forward so that I can put that in my my diary, right? Mm-hmm. I met this person and I still keep these emails I receive from individuals where it's it's more than I like your film. I mean, it's it's nice to hear that, but when people tell me very specific uh, situations that they saw on screen uh, unfold, that's my biggest gift. Yeah. So I want to interject here because the last several podcasts, maybe most of the podcast interviews that I've done so far, the artists have said this very thing how important it is to hear from a specific individual about a specific way that the art touched them, something that they remember, something that made them feel an emotion or move them, something that they're still thinking about two weeks later. This has a huge impact on the creator hearing this. So I just want to invite the listeners, the next time you see a piece of art or you hear a piece of art, you experience that and something moves you, please share that information with the creator because these are the things that we hold on to and that keep us making and moving forward with our work. That individual comment means the world. So I just want to encourage people to do that because it it's everything. Everything. So how can people see Parallel Parking and what is next for the film? Parallel Parking is being reviewed by several film festivals. So our our first film festival where the film will be screened is the Carborough Film Festival uh, on the 17th of November. 
But, um, you know, fingers crossed, we have at least 20 festivals that are looking at the film. I'm hoping uh, even a fraction of them would pick this film up and um, show it to their audience. They're all over the country. So getting exposure in different parts of the country will help uh, bring in people from different facets of life. But once we are past the film festival circuit, we will certainly put it online. There is no major distributor associated with this film yet. Uh, If we do find one, it will make its way to Amazon Prime, iTunes, Netflix much sooner. But at the very least, I'm targeting early 2020 is when we'll put it online for folks to watch. Uh, But if anyone's extremely interested and excited to watch the film, uh, talk to me. Send me an email. Visit our website, parallelparkingfilm.com, and we can figure something out. Wonderful. I will put all of those links in the show notes. Is there anything else you'd like to cover before we wrap up? Uh, Just one thing. Uh, What I want to tell people is that support independent filmmakers. Uh, We create films at the grassroots level. Uh, We don't have the resources. We don't have the the time in some cases to build large uh, epic films. Uh, We want to tell small stories in our own way, but these are rich stories. So support independent filmmakers, support independent artists. They need your love and uh, guidance and and assistance in some cases. So please reach out to them, drop a line, say good things. Thank you so much, Avi, for being here today and for this conversation. I wish you all the success in the world. And I'm so grateful that I got to see Parallel Parking before most people will be able to see it. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. Artist Soapbox is a listener-supported podcast. Please support the podcast via our Patreon page, patreon.com slash artistsoapbox. For more information, go to our website, artistsoapbox.org. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. All of this information is in the show notes. Artist Soapbox music is composed by Bart Matthews. Thanks so much, and we're out.